0: Fair warning, this show contains strong language and adult themes from time to time. Sorry, Jerry can't help it. Sick Boy Wolfgang Productions presents The Offering with Jerry Horror. A deep dive into the history of film and its filmmakers. Mostly horror, always
1: genre. 80s and 90s horror fans, it is time to rejoice. You've seen his work, you're a fan of his art, and now you can wear artist Mark Schoenbach's sadist art designs. If you're a fan of cult classic horror, you know his work, you've seen it everywhere, from the Halloween franchise to Pool Party Massacre, whether it's at Slashback Video or Mac and Me, you will recognize his distinct style instantly. Now check out his latest stock including R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike inspired merchandise. Visit sadistartdesigns.com and put some respect on your swag. Where can I get my pickles when I can't get to a farmers market or festival? The answer is Pickle Island in Bayville, New York. Listen, I've been selling a small pickle my whole life, I know all about it. From the vine to the brine, they keep their pickles cold with a delicious diverse selection of gourmet pickles, including their savory classic bread and butter sweet chip, horseradish pickle, jalapeno pickle, and sweet Cajun pickle. They even got pickled beets and okra, a variety of sour treats for your next barbecue or get-together. But if you visit their store in Bayville, Long Island, New York, there's so much more, so much more. A fantastic selection of physical media, comics, music, movies, VHS, and Matt Roran, their enthusiastic pickle salesman. It's kind of a big deal. Check them out now at HormansBestPickles.com. Hey, quit jerking your gherkin and head over to Pickle Island in Bayville, New York. Welcome to The Offering with Jerry Hara, the show where we can have a quiet and frank discussion as adults about the things that matter to me, or at least that I think matter to me. Please take a moment to subscribe to our show, wherever you get fine podcasts, and hey, stay up to date on future episodes. This week on The Offering, the 1988 martial arts cult classic, Bloodsport. friends from beyond the binary it's me jerry hara and this is the offering i've been thinking about a lot of things couldn't sleep last night could not sleep got three hours of sleep i don't know what's going on i don't know what's wrong with me maybe i'm getting old maybe uh maybe i had too much caffeine i don't know it's just uh just the way it uh, shakes out sometimes you can't go to sleep so i'm thinking to myself like what movie needs to be remade No movie truly needs to be remade. You know, once you've got a good original film, there's no point in it, you know, if it's good enough. Like Star Wars doesn't need to be remade, but they'll kind of keep remaking that motherfucker until it stops making money. So I'm thinking, okay, just hear me out, folks. I I know this sounds crazy. Henry Cavill, okay, as the Highlander, Connor McLeod, and then Carl Urban. As the bad guy, which uh, I cannot forget, or I can't remember what his name—the Kurgan. His name is the Kurgan. Nicholas Winding Reffin directing, or Edgar Wright. This I think would really work. I don't know why. I thought it was a brilliant idea. Um, I don't know. It it is what it is. These are the things I think about when I can't sleep. It's funny because I was watching The Simpsons, and there's this episode where Bart talks about, you know, getting revenge. And he's like, uh, you got your Schwarzeneggers, your Stallones, and to a lesser extent, your Van Dams. And I got to say, it's, yeah, I get it. I get the joke. You know, at a certain point, they called Van Damme the leaner, meaner, looser version of Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is a lot of adjectives to describe this dude. I loved Van Dam. I think it's great that he was kind of like Euro trash. Like, (laughs) you could imagine Van Dam smoking a cigarette with his legs crossed like a lady. I, mean, it's, I, I think that was actually an issue of GQ, now that I'm thinking back. When you think about the lexicon of 80s action heroes, you have Schwarzenegger who kind of, he comes on the scene with Conan the Barbarian, 82, hits it big in 84 with Terminator. Stallone was a presence from the 1970s. You know, the, the Rocky film started in the 70s. He starts doing action pictures like First Blood. Van Dam really doesn't blow up until the late 80s and then really comes into his own in the 90s. It's like an insane trajectory. I think in five years, he did like six or seven movies, and that's kind of the way it works. You got to strike while the iron's hot. You got to capitalize on whatever success you've generated. I think Bloodsport changed my life in some profound, ridiculous way. It also opens the floodgates for white guy karate, white guy karate films. There was kind of this weird thing where after Bruce Lee died, they kept trying to launch other Asian superstars and obviously Jackie Chan, who wouldn't kind of get his flowers in America until Rumble in the Bronx, which is kind of sad. But I think that they wanted a, a Caucasian. Who could do martial arts? It, it, this is kind of always the way things. It's it's like you know Eminem. He was a white guy who could rap, but really good. Even Elvis. Elvis was a singer who could do black music, really good. And that's kind of what blew him up. So with Van Dam, you've got a guy who's a really competent martial artist, and he brings something different to the table. I like Van Dam a lot. I, I really, out of all the action heroes, I think he was my favorite because he wasn't afraid to kind of take chances with his films. He was doing some really weird stuff sometimes, but uh, it worked. So we're going to talk about Bloodsport today. In case you uh, missed what this episode is going to be about, we're going to go behind the scenes. We're going to talk about the history of the film. It's all rather interesting. So uh, really hope you're enjoying this. You know, I hope you're enjoying this podcast. We're taking it back to 88, eight great films from 1988. And uh, let's go on this journey into the secret, hidden society of kumite fighting in Hong Kong. Bloodsport is a film from 1988 introducing the world to martial arts sensation Jean-Claude Van Damme. If you ever think that you're fucking up in life... Just know that the script for this movie sat in a drawer for, like, over a year. It was sitting in a drawer of canon and just wasn't getting read or or anything. Like, no one really cared. And after the movie was shot, it got shelved for over a year because they said it was unreleasable, just wasn't cutting the mustard. From Menachem Golan uh, and Yoram Globus from, obviously, the canon film group which is probably one of my favorite imprints that uh, came out of the 80s. They made a lot of great movies, like American Ninja, Delta Force, among others, and of course, Bloodsport. The production history of Bloodsport is muddled at best, okay? It's, it's kind of like some things are easy to figure out, some things are a little bit more difficult. But in the service of explaining... This movie to you The man who it's based on Frank Dukes He's a liar Okay I think there's like 20% truth In some of his shit But I just want to I want to say this Like I've read just about everything about this guy Slash film Did a really good article Kind of delving deep into the whole Frank Dukes thing He was a guy who said that he was in the CIA That he was highly decorated that he won the, the Kumite 10 years in a row or whatever it was. And it, it's just kind of ridiculous. He's been kind of proven and outed and brought to the light that he is just a fraud. So I, I just need to preface that. So I'm, I'm not taking the man Frank Dukes at what he says he is because he isn't. It, it just, it doesn't, you know, like none of it adds up, but yeah. So this is a quote from Frank Dukes. And this is why I have to open it with with this. My involvement in that tournament was a part of a plan launched in 1975 to infiltrate the criminal organizations that had organized the fights. The original idea was to participate in the Kumite tournament and make a few contacts. We initially assumed I would lose, but eventually I became one of the best Kumite fighters to ever participate in the event. It's Frank Dukes. 1986 Martial Arts Magazine. Okay, sure, whatever. You know, it's you're not tooting your own horn, are you? Not, not at all, right? The real Frank Dukes, who is the central character of Bloodsport, was an actual real guy. However, that would appear to be the only true to life aspect of this entire story. Dukes owned a bunch of, uh, you know, martial arts gyms, dojos in the L.A. area. And he met screenwriter Sheldon Lettich through Dukes' you know, agent. And as Sheldon told it, Frank told me a lot of tall tales, most of which turned out to be bullshit. You, you already see where this is all going, folks. But his stories about participating in this so-called Kumite event sounded like a great idea for a movie. So you've got this guy who's really outlandish and is making all these claims. And Sheldon says to himself, this is a good movie. Win, lose, or draw, even if this guy is full of shit... This is still a good story. And I think that all stories based in truth eventually are embellished in one way or another. You know, there's there's like the root of the story that's actually real, that's actually like what happened. And then there's the legend. And, you know, as they say, print the legend. And that's kind of what they do. For centuries, the Society of the Black Dragon
0: has sanctioned an ancient rite of combat known as the Kumite. open only to the world's most lethal warriors. It has never been won by a Westerner. You are not Japanese. I can do it. Now, for the first time, the true story of America's super agent, Frank Binks, can be revealed. Uncle Sam can't afford to let you get hurt. I'm going to... Frank is going to fight in the Kumite and we're here to stop him. An awesome human weapon. There's me just looking at it. Who infiltrates the Chinese underworld. I did not come this far to stop now. you To enter a forbidden competition.
1: Couldn't you just get me in
0: strict rules? No press.
1: Are you telling me you never break rules?
0: <laughs> where every fighting style... Worthy opponent every deadly technique Aye. flash in savage combat i'm separate the men from the boys and only one will triumph Now i will break you Aye. international martial arts sensation jean claude van damme in blood sport the true story of the ultimate champion
1: So he's going on that he participated in the Kumite and he's the baddest white man ever because that's another trope of what I call white guy karate where the white guy is finally accepted by the Asian culture and then realizes that he is the Aryan Superman that has come to save the people and that's a lot of the marketing that came from all these films because blood sport starts to trend. Enter the Dragon has a martial arts tournament that's kind of at the heart of the story. But Van Damme takes it to another level. It it becomes a subgenre. Tournament fighting films, there were so many of them. And like 90% of them suck. You know, they tried doing everything. There's Shoot Fighter, Breathing Fire, both starring Bolo Young, who is obviously the villain in this film and was also the villain... In Enter the Dragon And they were lucky that even though Enter the Dragon was made In like 72 That Bolo Young took care of himself And uh, still looked great, even better Bolo Young was uh, A Mr. Universe in Hong Kong For many years, I think five years straight Kind of like the Chinese Version of Arnold Schwarzenegger A lot of people don't know this But Bolo Young is a Tai Chi Master, which is obviously a very Gentle martial art, but once you've mastered it, it's a very powerful martial art because of the amount of focus and chi uh, that has to be generated. You know, it's an internal martial art, as we call it. Like kickboxing is like exterior. Wing Chun, just Chinese, that's more of a interior fighting art. So Sheldon Lettich, who had some juice after working on Rambo Three, he's basically able to pitch. To a bunch of different studios, action pictures, because Rambo 3, which might end up becoming an episode two in the future, is a crazy story. It's a story of egos and Sylvester Stallone's incredible mullet. His, ooh, Jesus. I don't even wanna get into that. That's just Jesus. So, Sheldon Ledich, who had some juice after doing a couple of these action pictures, He goes to producer Mark DeSalle, who loved the idea. He's like, oh, we we should definitely do a tournament film. And it wasn't until after the film premiered that they learned that Dukes' life experiences were made up. And they kind of felt a little strange about that. But it is what it is. The LA Times ran a story debunking Dukes' tale of traveling the world and fighting in an ultra-secretive fight-to-the-death tournament. As they learned, Dukes had never been east of San Diego, less Hong Kong, and his trophy from the supposed Kumite in the Bahamas was actually made in the San Fernando Valley. Okay, like I said, I just wanted to preface this whole thing that I don't want any of our listeners to believe that any of these claims that this man made were real. They're, they're all ridiculous. So, Mark DeSalle invites Sheldon Lettich to lunch, and he says, you know, movies come in cycles, and there hasn't been a martial arts wave film in a while, and I think that cycle's going to come back. So essentially, DeSalle pitches him what will end up being the story for Kickboxer, and he said, well, if you're looking for a martial arts film, it just so happens that I've got one of my own, and he says, you might like this film that I wrote called Bloodsport, and... This story has been told many times with, you know, Frank Dukes telling Sheldon all of his exploits and Sheldon essentially just distilling it down to the best parts. You know, he's like, oh, this will work, this will work, you know. And (laughs) Frank Dukes used to tell everybody that he was a ninja. He still maintains that he is a ninja. And he took his training from this guy named Tanaka, which obviously that ends up in Bloodsport. He tells Sheldon about this tournament. He says to himself, this is going to make a good movie, okay? Even though what this man is telling me is probably not factual, I'm going to to make it into the best film that I possibly can. So this no-holds tournament was very brutal and bloody. So kind of the name Bloodsport came from that. Sheldon Lettich hears that and he's like, oh man, Bloodsport, that's kind of a dope name for a movie. And the bell started ringing in his head and he's like, okay, Okay, this script is called Bloodsport. That's what we're doing. It's a great title for a movie. Everything that he heard about this kumite was a great idea for a movie. And at that lunch, Mark agreed and hired Sheldon to write the script for Bloodsport. Sheldon Lettich is writing the script and he says to himself, he's like, this movie is going to live or die by whoever we cast in the lead. This guy is going to have to be like Bruce Lee. The thing is, there's only one Bruce Lee. You can't manufacture that. Basically, Sheldon has to put on it because of what Dukes had told him. He says, you have to tell everybody that's based on a true story. And that was something that was kind of intriguing. And it actually kind of sparked the interest of Menachem Golan. He basically gives Sheldon a small amount of money. You can't even remember how much money it is. He gives the script to Menachem and it sits in a drawer for a year. Galan never gets around to reading it. It just becomes another acquisition that Canon made at the time. Supposedly, I think he was paid close to 15 grand for the script. Maybe even less. There's this guy named Lou Horwitz, okay? He's a financier for films, gets money from overseas to produce films. He likes the idea. And he goes to Menachem, and he says, like, listen, I think we really should make this movie. I believe in the script, and uh, I think you'd be a fool not to do it. You own it. So a number of ideas get thrown out. Cannon was kind of like, hey, we should get Chuck Norris in the lead. And he's like, nah. He's like, Chuck Norris at this point is, like, middle-aged. He's found his success in films like Delta Force and Invasion USA, which just over-the-top More action explosion That's kind of where Chuck Norris finds his sweet spot And ultimately The premise for Bloodsport Would be that US soldier Frank Dukes Has come to Hong Kong to be accepted Into the Kumite He's trained as a ninja He also has problems with military Officers because he goes AWOL He's in the military And he goes AWOL so he can fight for the Honor of his master Tanaka In this secret tournament Now, all of this sounds ridiculous until you see it, and it all comes together. You know, this world of clandestine fighters just seems outrageous and ridiculous, but again, it all works. We gotta enter JCVD, okay? When Jean-Claude was a child, he was pudgy, and he wore glasses. He was often bullied. At the age of 10, his father enrolled him in martial arts classes, which led to Van Damme participating in several competitions. But at the same time, his mother's wishes were that if he was going to do karate, he had to take ballet classes because he had to somehow balance this whole thing. And that comes obviously to a great strength of Van Damme is that he has these beautiful movements. He's got beautiful kicks and that's because of the ballet. You can take martial arts the closest you'll come with Taekwondo with a lot of those signature flashy kicks. Um, but for the most part, what Van Damme is displaying on screen, you, you can't replicate. That's There's a God-given talent. There's something that this guy has. It's something special. So by the time Van Damme's 16, he starts competing in teen bodybuilding shows, which I didn't even know were a thing, but apparently they are. He starts winning those as well. So physical fitness becomes this huge passion of Van Damme, and he opened a gym, which ends up being quite successful, but it wasn't enough. He grew up watching these movies with Steve Reeves, who played Hercules, tough guys like Kirk Douglas, and he says to himself, I want to do this, I want to be a big Hollywood star. And then he sees Enter the Dragon with Bruce Lee. Rising star Arnold Schwarzenegger, who really can't speak English too well, has a very loose grasp on the English language. So he sees Schwarzenegger and he says to himself, I think I want to try a hand at this. I want to give this a shot. So with the desire to become an actor, to become a star, he moves to the United States in 1982. He was 22 years old. He comes to the States with virtually nothing. ...with some of the money that he had saved from the gym. He's doing odd jobs. Dude is suffering. He works as a limo driver, a pizza boy, carpet factory worker. He's doing whatever he can just to, you know, basically survive. Now, the huge film that made a lot of money because it cost nothing... ...and broke into the cultural zeitgeist was Breakin'. He's a background dancer in Breakin', which is hysterical... And he tried to get anyone's attention that he could when they were shooting in Venice. He's on the boardwalk and he's just like doing his martial arts. And anybody who will listen, Van Dam, will pitch that he's the ultimate package. Now, this is kind of where Van Dam gets his big break. He's a waiter at a local restaurant that Chuck Norris loves. And Chuck Norris comes in there and he says, look, maybe you could be my training partner and I'll pay you. It's better than working at a restaurant. And he eventually picks up Van Damme as his sparring partner. That's pretty much what happens. He's he's kind of indoctrinated into the Cannon family kind of happenstance by this chance meeting with Chuck Norris. We're going to get to the different versions of the story of how Van Damme got signed to Cannon because that's a whole other ball of wax. But JCVD gets a big break. He gets cast in Predator, the Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle, and he's like, oh, this is going to be great. And they tell him, you're going to be playing the bad guy. And he's really excited. He's like, this is it. (laughs) Little does he know that Joel Silver says to him, you're going to play the Predator. If you don't know, before Stan Winston's incredible design for the Predator, they had this other outfit that looked like a weird red lobster monster. Go online. Take a look. I'll wait. It was terrible. And uh, it was very restrictive. Um, So Van Damme is basically like This is not going to work I can't show off my martial arts It just ended up being Kind of a bad experience So Van Damme is barely on set I want to say for two weeks And they realize John McTiernan is shooting Predator And he's like this does not look good This lobster monster sucks So that's where they brought in Stan Winston And the rest is history The Predator design essentially is probably the greatest monster design since Creature from the Black Lagoon, the Gill Man, goes on to become iconic. To this day, it's still a winner. Van Dam goes to Menachem, and he says, I'm in Predator. Golan is like, ooh, he's like, this guy's in Predator. He's like, that's a big 20th century Fox film with Schwarzenegger. He says, well, what do you play? He's like, I'm the bad guy. Menachem is is not a stupid man. He says, oh, he's the bad guy in an in Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, you know? Little he doesn't know about the lobster suit. He's unaware of that. Obviously, Van Damme he left that part out. Jean-Claude Van Damme is a stage name. He was born Jean-Claude Camille Francois Van Varenberg. Say that five times fast. Van Damme catches up to Menachem on the street. Some people say it happened at the canon office. Some people say <laughs> that it happened uh, at a restaurant. He basically says, hey, Menachem, you remember me? I was in break I was um, Chuck Norris' training partner. I'd like to let you know what I can do. So he didn't remember Van Damme for whatever reason. So apparently Goan does not remember Van Damme. He just says to himself, who, who are you? Wait, what? So, Van Damme's version of this story is far more concise. I did my split. I showed my muscles. I said, I'm the best and I'm not too expensive right now. So, he throws this kick that misses Galan's face by like two inches and then throws, you know, the 360 spinning roundhouse kick, back spinning kick, whatever you want to call it. And Galan is impressed enough that he's like, All right, we'll sign this guy. We'll give him a couple of thousand dollars. We'll put him on retainer. I think the final number was like $25,000 up front for a three-picture speculative deal, which is like, I know, even this is like 86 money. It's just like, all right, well, whatever. You hear a bunch of different versions of how Jean-Claude basically was able to enamor Menachem with his skills. He comes by the next morning. To see Menachem Comes in his office And he gives him a copy of the script By this point Van Dam didn't care They could have given him any script And he would—he was going to make the movie Sheldon Lettich is hoping That this movie gets made They can find a star Someone goes to Sheldon Lettich And says to him Hey look They're thinking about casting this guy Jean-Claude Van Dam, And he's like Well it's, that's a terrible name And it's a very long name I don't think it'll work Whatever, he shouldn't even know about Jean-Claude's real name Which is like, ooh He's in this movie, No Retreat, No Surrender He plays Ivan the Russian Which is a two-dimensional character But he was allowed to show off his martial arts prowess So Sheldon and a couple of his producer buddies They go to the theater and they're blown away by this movie He's like, this guy's fucking great He's like, we could easily we, You know, gives the enthusiastic two thumbs up And the next thing they know, they're in pre-production in Hong Kong. So it really happened quickly. Again, the script sat in a drawer for a year. Nothing happened. And then everything happens. This is a good kind of like moral lesson that you kind of never know when something is going to take off. You might think a project is dead and it gets resurrected. This happens a lot. You have unproduced scripts that go on for like 10, 20 years just sitting around. Somebody dusts it off and says, hey, this has been a great movie. Sheldon Lettich talks to Jean-Claude Van Damme for the first time over the phone. And they end up having this really deep conversation for like two hours. And they're both on the same page. So he says, why don't you come over to Los Angeles? We'll meet face to face. And he comes over to Sheldon Lettich's apartment, which was over in La Brea. He meets his wife and they just hit it off. Sheldon Lettich and Van Damme become like fast friends And they get closer and closer. Both of their wives were pregnant at the same time. So it kind of created this familial bond between Sheldon, his wife, and Jean-Claude Van Damme and his wife. He was writing for Sylvester Stallone at that point. He was doing, like, you know, touch-ups, fixes on some of the scripts, Tango and Cash, you know. He wasn't getting the writing credit, but... Stallone broke him off a couple of bucks, and that was keeping the lights on, so that was very important and key at the time. Before Menachem can sign off on Van Damme, he's basically like, we gotta get Dudikoff, because Dudikoff, let me say this, Michael Dudikoff, who stars in the American Ninja films, had really great looks, has almost kind of a James Dean look to him, and Cannon wanted to make him a big star. You know, you could say the films that he made were schlock. They are largely. Uh, you know, Avenging Force, Platoon Leader, and uh, as the aforementioned American Ninja films. Dudekoff was 6'2, and they said he was too tall, didn't have the look, he didn't have enough muscle, and uh, he apparently passed on the script. You know, so the, <laughs> the guy from the American Ninja movies is not going to do Bloodsport. What a world. Mark DeSalle basically said, Uh, you know, being a producer on this film. He's like, I think that Van Damme would appeal to both sexes. I wanted to find a martial arts star who was a ladies' man and could appeal to both men and women. You know, he's an American hero who fights for justice the American way and kicks the stuffing out of the bad guys. The only problem being that Jean-Claude Van Damme had this very thick, pronounced Belgium accent. His English wasn't too good. And at one point, they were thinking about dubbing all of Bloodsport and all of his lines. Menachem's word for Jean-Claude was poison. He kept saying, Jean-Claude is poison. He's poison. This guy's never going to make it. He's a loser. He's a terrible actor. I'll tell you what. We make this movie with Michael Dudikoff. Michael Dudikoff is a movie star. For whatever reason, they were like the old-time studios where they had a star system and they had people they were hot on. And finally, at the last minute, he's like, all right, Jean-Claude can play Frank Dukes, whatever. So principal photography finally begins uh, October 17th 1986, obviously in Hong Kong. This was the first movie since 1969 that had been shot on location in Hong Kong. It's pretty incredible because people forget that up until 96, Hong Kong was pretty much free until it got taken back over by the Chinese government. So they were able to do a lot of different things, which one of them being able to go and make movies in Hong Kong was a big deal. Bloodsport coming there was a big deal. There were no stunt performers on set. While the movie is predominantly made up of actors like Van Damme and actress uh, Leia Ayers, the production wanted the Kumite to be as authentic as possible. So they hire a lot of real-life martial artists to play alongside Van Damme. For instance, like Paulo Tocha, who plays the Muay Thai fighter, Paco, he's a real-life Muay Thai champion and one of the first Westerners to train in the martial art. (laughs) This led to a problem because there's no stunt performers in this movie. Everybody got hurt. Everybody got beat up, bruises, broken legs, anything you can think of. So everything, even though it's fake, there's a sense of realism because uh, most of the time, these guys are killing each other. Uh, Van Damme's friend, Mikhail Kesey, Michael Kesey, whatever you want to say, he plays kickboxer Suen Parades. I can't even say half of these movies. He's a fellow martial artist. He's a friend of Van Damme. They trained together in Shotokan Karate in Belgium. Kesey followed Van Damme to Los Angeles and found himself as a bit part in Bloodsport. Eventually, plays the villain Tong Po in Kickboxer. Van Dam helping out his buddies early on. He's a good dude. This is another. I had to just bring this up because it's ridiculous. <laughs> Frank Dukes doesn't like the uniforms. He's like, this is bullshit. This is not. <laughs> this is not what was actually worn at the fake fights that I made up in the Bahamas. There was no extra money in the budget to revamp the uniforms. So Dukes made himself the de facto costume designer and paid out of pocket to have his wife buy uniforms. And look, man, Frank Dukes might be a liar, but he's a hell of a seamstress because he was able to modify these costumes and make them work. Uh, He wanted this sense of realism that had never been seen in a martial arts tournament film. Every time they tried to put Jean-Claude in a different outfit, none of it worked because he couldn't move. He couldn't do the kicks. And a couple of times he started ripping the pants. They were made of silk. So it just, it didn't work out. And eventually they figure out, let's put him in bicycle shorts because that was kind of the fashion. It was the aerobic era. Look, it is what it is. He looks sexy in those, uh, those (laughs) chef's kiss. Uh, he looks great in those uh, little bicycle shorts. We'll be right back with more of The Offering with Jerry Horror. Stay spooky all year long at Strange Love Parlor. Long Island's exquisite oddities and curiosity parlor in Lindenhurst, New York. They've got some ghastly apparel. Strange Love Parlor supplies an array of goth jewelry, unisex horror-themed gear, Halloween accoutrement, monstrous purses and wallets, spooky pins, patches, and stickers, providing you with the most wonderful and the most strange of treasures. Visit Strange Love Parlor regularly to find the item of your dreams, or perhaps even your nightmares. Grab your ghoul gang and visit today. Strange Love Parlor in Lindenhurst, Long Island, New York. monster lovers, young and old, living and dead. You can now make it Halloween all year round. The Gooligans are dying for you to check out their creepy comedy horror show now on their YouTube channel. Have you been ravenous for programs that are geared more towards your sick sensibility? Have you been fiending for horror and comedy so fun that it makes you want to scream? Well, dig no further. Full episodes of the Gooligans miniseries are available for you to sink your teeth into. And if you don't know about the Gooligans, it's like the monkeys meets the monsters meets Pee-wee's playhouse. These fun party monsters exist purely to bring on the death of your life-sucking normal everyday TV show. The Gooligans follows the adventures of Boris Stein, the monstrous Frankenstein construct, Wolfgang W. Wolfgang, the likable Lycanthrope, and Void, King of the Slow Zombies, joined by a cadre of your favorite cult Cretans, including vampires, sea creatures, luchadors, and sexy go-go girls. Check out the full episodes of their miniseries now on the Gooligans YouTube channel, and have a scary good time. Listeners and fans of The Offering can get their hands on their very own The Offering with Jerry Hara merch, now only at Tee Public. Find your own fresh The Offering with Jerry Hara high-quality merchandise, including t-shirts, hoodies, tank tops, long sleeves, stickers, and mugs. Just like the show, we've got gear that's mostly horror, always genre. The Offering with Jerry Hara Tee Public store has everything you need to represent your favorite podcast. Folks, head on over to teapublic.com right now and pick up your very own offering tea today. You're listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. Got a question or story you want to share with me? It might be featured in a future episode. Email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at jerryhara. I'm also on Instagram. You can find me there, at Jerry Hara. Rate and review this show on Apple Podcast, and you might find your review in an upcoming episode. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the offering. Now back to the show. They shoot the movie. It goes really smoothly. It's shot in like less than 30 days. They get back. They show it to Menachem, and the movie gets shelved for two years. Galan didn't like it. He says, this is really bad. I won't release this. The guy who fucking released American Ninja and Death Wish 3 would not release Bloodsport. He says, this, this is bad. I'm not going to release this in theaters. This movie's terrible. At best, we'll release it straight to video. It'll make some money. But instead of letting it languish further, Golan trusts his instincts, and he says, you know what? Maybe it is salvageable. So, in Menachem's defense... When you saw the final, the first cut, he says, this isn't going to work, right? But Menachem, being the smart businessman that he was, he has an in-house fixer named Michael J. Duthie, who's a really good editor as well. And he basically reworked the movie. When a lot of films came back and they just didn't work for one reason or another, Michael Duthie was the guy who would basically put the polish on it and make it work. For one reason or another, he says to Menachem, He says, "You know what? I, I think there's something here. I, I really do think that we can turn this into something different." Jean Claude Van Damme has a very good sense of choreography and how a fight scene should be edited. So Van Damme gets into the editing bay uh, with Dothy, and they start going through all the footage. They restructure the, the movie. They even they're able to get you know like they get Stan Bush. Who did the music for Transformers. He's very popular at the time. They get him to do some music. They recut the movie and it works. It worked so great. They all went to a screening room. They show it to Menachem. They show it to the producers and everybody was like, oh my God, This we've got something here. This recut version of Bloodsport totally works. It's incredible because ultimately Bloodsport opens on 123 screens in california they're kind of like test piloting it a lot of what canon did especially in the 80s was they would open these movies small like in one area and then kind of almost like a road show it was like okay we're going to do los angeles chicago all the major cities new york and we'll open it kind of territory by territory this movie takes in half a million dollars in its first three days it's like it's like an underground success and it's blowing up in Los Angeles. And this is the 7th of March. And they say, oh my God, this movie made half a million dollars in three days. Like, there's something here. Canon decides, okay, we're going to schedule 600 screens. We'll go nationwide, April 22nd, 88. And some critics, they're calling the film a jungle of cliche and a reservoir of bad acting. This movie managed to gross... $50 million on a budget of $2 million. And that is not including The VHS deals that were in place at the time That's where the movie cleaned up Eventually, I mean, like If you grew up in the 80s and 90s TBS had this thing uh, Movies for guys who like movies They played Bloodsport For what seemed like five years straight Over and over on a loop So if you tuned into TNT TBS, uh, here in New York, WPIX Channel 11, they showed Bloodsport like every week. It was on constantly. If, if you didn't grow up in that time period, um, it was omnipresent, especially on cable. Believe it or not, this ends up being one of Canon's most profitable films uh, of all time. It ends up really working. This movie seems to touch some kind of a nerve. It's really kind of this crazy, convoluted story of how this film actually came together. And it works. For all ostensible purposes, it showcases Van Damme and what he can do. It became kind of the template for all these films, especially in the 90s, that rip off Bloodsport. Even right down to the tagline of, you know, introducing martial arts sensation. Because right there, okay, we've established what this guy does. This led to a lot of white guy karate movies. I mean, Jesus Christ, it opened the fucking door. Now, this is crazy. Mortal Kombat was released in 92. Before then, they were saying to themselves, like, wow, the guys who would go on to make Mortal Kombat saw Bloodsport, and they said, this would be a really cool video game. It just didn't work. They tried to get Van Damme to play Johnny Cage, or let me explain. Johnny Cage was based on Jean-Claude Van Damme, almost as a nod and kind of a poke at him because they tried to get him into the game, and when they couldn't, they said, okay, we're going to lampoon Van Damme. We'll leave right down to the splits. You know, Johnny Cage takes a lot from the character, Frank Dukes in Bloodsport, kind of dressed the same way. It's an homage, but at the same time, uh, it's definitely poking fun uh, gently. At Van Damme. Van Damme liked the music more than he liked the movie. Van Damme felt there was more he could have done with this movie. It just didn't reach kind of the pinnacle of what he wanted. I think Jean-Claude wanted Rocky and the film was not Rocky. It was a stylized uh, martial arts spectacular. Stan Bush, who did the movie soundtrack, Transformers the movie, he did the hit song, The Touch, which later goes on to be featured in Boogie Nights, to very great comedic effect. He contributes two songs, Fight to Survive and On My Own, in quotations, Alone, which is like, come on, what are we doing with that fucking title? Uh, and then he goes on to write three songs for Kickboxer, Never Surrender, Streets of Siam, and Fight for Love. So Van Dam kept saying to himself, he's like, wow, he's like, the best part of this movie is Stan Bush's music that that's what van dam was most impressed by it's crazy because years after the movie is released bush convinced bouncers to let the then super famous van dam and his entourage into a packed music venue where the musician was playing i call bullshit there was never a packed venue with stan bush when van dam recognized the, mus- the musician from his work in bloodsport he said this music it's amazing and that's kind of <laughs> ridiculous it's luck man you can't make this shit up you really can't I'm gonna
0: stick my clay-
1: So, do you want to get into the Frank Dukes thing? Okay, all right. So, I can't. I just fucking can't with this. It's ridiculous. So, Bloodsport um, is based on the life of Frank Dukes, and in May 1st of 1988, the LA Times investigated some of Dukes' claims, but could not verify them. The paper had found no evidence that Dukes was the first Westerner to win the Kumite or that the sponsoring organization, the International Fighting Arts Association, even existed. Dukes explained that the organization is clandestine, and that the Kumites are held in secret so that records would not exist. As for the ceremonial sword that he was supposedly awarded for winning the Kumite, uh, claimed he traded it to rescue a boatload of orphans in the Philippines. Okay, take this all with a big grain of salt. Swallow the whole fucking shaker. While records do show that Duke served the United States Marine Corps from 75 to 81, there is no indication that his tour of duty took him outside of the United States. However, Duke's told the newspaper that his missions were classified and would not be reflected on his records. This is crazy. I mean, come on. Do you, do you really believe any of this stuff happened? I don't know. I don't believe it. It's cool, though, at the end of the movie when they put up the title card and it's like, you know, most consecutive knock. It's ridiculous. Like, he had a he had a knockout that was like in half a second. It's like, come on, man. Like, there's a difference. Like, if you're going to lie, I guess you know what? He went all in. <laughs> he went big on the lies. This movie introduces Van Damme to the world, obviously. And Cannon is like, we got to strike while the iron's hot. So, they they do Cyborg, which is a low-budget movie. The sets on the movie were supposed to be the sets for Masters of the Universe 2, which Masters of the Universe bombed. Yeah, that didn't work out. So, part of their idea was, wait, we'll make Masters of the Universe 2, but we'll make it with Van Damme. And Mattel was like, no, please. Like, after what you did with Dolph Lundgren and Frank Langella, Mattel was like, we're we're officially out of the canon pictures business. We'll take a we'll take our character elsewhere and see how it fares. Some people say that the Masters of the Universe film completely poisoned the water for any future Mattel tie-ins. As of right now, we're getting a Barbie movie that's by uh, Greta Gerwig. You know, looks to be pretty cool and uh something a little bit different, but Think about how many years it's taken some of these toy lines to finally get to the big screen. But it, it's happening. They call up Albert Payan, and they make Cyborg. It's made in less than a month. It's a cheapie. They do Kickboxer. All of these films end up being wildly successful. Van Damme ends up going on a tear, where like MGM produces Death Warrant. And ultimately, in 91, he lands over at Universal. Uh, doing Lionheart, which was essentially kind of a slick remake, but more with a dramatic flair. And that film works well for what it is. You have to understand, these Van Damme movies made a lot of money. They were cheap to make, especially Bloodsport. You know, for a movie that cost $2 million, and then probably went to gross over $100 million, once you factor in everything... Because they don't include, like, foreign receipts. Like, when we talk about the $50 million, that's just U.S., Canada, Mexico, that, you know, the whole North American deal. It's incredible. Imagine investing that kind of money and making that kind of a return. So Van Damme becomes pretty much a surefire bet after this. This film cements him. People want to see more. They're, They're intrigued by this guy. And the VHS era was very profitable because the availability was, okay, you saw Bloodsport, now here's Cyborg, here's Kickboxer, and these movies become like some of Canon's biggest product. Uh, And at that time, they were on the decline because the aforementioned Masters of the Universe, Superman IV, The Quest for Peace, Sylvester Stallone's Over the Top, they were basically flops. They did not make much money, And this was canon trying to go to the next level. But the martial arts films, whether it was Chuck Norris, Michael Dudikoff, that was where they were making their money. You know, the money was in the ninja movies because they were so cheap to be shot. A lot of these movies, whether it was Braddock, Missing in Action 3, American Ninja 2, they were all shot in the Philippines in under a month. This was a surefire way for them to make money. So at this point... They've got this three-picture deal. They're trying to extend it. But Van Damme moves on. And he just goes and he does all these different movies for other studios. And once he lands over at Universal, that changes the trajectory. Because now you had a guy who was playing in 600 theaters. Now he's playing in 2,000 theaters. And he's got major distribution. He's got the marketing machine behind him. But it happens so quickly. And to think that this movie ultimately would have just ended up on a shelf somewhere is really sad. Thank God it didn't happen. Let's flash forward, because this is very interesting. In October of 1988, the real Frank Dukes, not the fake one, sued his former friend and the man who portrayed him in the movie Bloodsport for breach of a 1991 oral contract. Dukes, who had been dating Jean-Claude Van Damme's sister-in-law... Penned a script for a movie that focused on the Kumite tournament, known simply as the Kumite, which would later become the film *The Quest*. This production company that existed—it's—it's okay, it's another Frank Dukes thing. Did it really exist? It ends up going out of business. Files Chapter Eleven. For better or worse, Frank Dukes blames all of this on Jean-Claude Van Damme, and as a result, the fifty-thousand-dollar agreement that Dukes had signed with Epic Pictures fell through. Dukes was left out in the cold while Van Damme moved on to film his hit film 1996's The Quest which is basically the big budget version of Bloodsport directed by Van Damme and it has none of the magic. I hate The Quest. I think it's a terrible movie has the late Roger Moore in it uh, it's a loose reworking, and he, he gives Frank Duke's story credit I think Van Damme Is a very loyal guy Because Even though all the bullshit that he goes through In Bloodsport with Frank Dukes He continually hires him back As a consultant As someone to help him with the choreography And this relationship Eventually just soured You can go on YouTube Right now And watch it on Court TV Who knew that Court TV had a YouTube channel I've watched some of the trial And it is ridiculous These two karate men, you know, (laughs) suing each other for 50 grand. It's almost like something that would have ended up on, like, Judge Judy. It's ridiculous. Did Frank Dukes win the court case against Van Damme? No. He lost his case, and Martin Singer, Van Damme's attorney, centered his closings on two witnesses who attacked the truthfulness behind Mm -hmm. Dukes' claims. Dukes testified before the court that Van Damme had written an outline and made an audio tape of their supposed agreement. For one reason or another, Dukes was not able to substantiate or provide said recordings, so this was ultimately destroyed. He goes and he says that in 1994, there was an earthquake, which irreparably damaged his home and apartment, whatever, and it destroyed the tapes and destroyed the evidence that he had of the oral agreement with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Ultimately, they throw this out of court, and that's pretty much the end of that relationship. It's really sad. What happens, though, is Van Dam is doing a lot of his own stunts. As uh, the 90s roll on, he takes $5 million, which was a big win, they gave him $5 million up front, $5 million after production, and then another $2 million as a bonus. It was like $12 million for Street Fighter, which was a terrible film. But at that point, Jean-Claude Van Damme um, starts using drugs, starts taking painkillers because he's, he's just using his body, obviously, in such rigorous ways that it's, it's destroying him. So the only way that he can wake up is to do cocaine. So you've got kind of this vicious cycle that starts with Street Fighter where he's using different barbiturates, opiates, and alcohol to go to sleep and then cocaine to wake up. And that's why, like, I love Van Damme, I really do, but you look at him now and he's very drawn. You can tell he's aged, he's he's weathered, and a lot of that had to do with the abuse of drugs. Flash forward to 2016. I recently received an inquiry via my MySpace page by Jean-Claude Van Damme. Did did MySpace exist in 2016? I don't know. It's crazy. I was watching Funny People and uh, Adam Sandler goes and performs for MySpace and there's a Tom joke and everything. And it's like, Jesus Christ. I mean, Tom made his money. Like My heart will go on for Tom. I'm sure it's all gravy on his end. So... Frank Dukes' Van Damme hits him up, slides into his DMs over on uh, MySpace, and Frank reveals, asking me uh, to please set aside our past differences in order that I might collaborate with doing another Bloodsport film with him. One thing is for certain, given our last communication, we recognize that we are both fighters who fought for what we believed in and was the truth for us. Unfortunately the people around us who could Not understand that we were warriors Began a mudslinging campaign On both sides to both of our Mutual detriment it was Out of our control Hollywood Wanted to destroy our relationship Come on Come on yeah this is re- So there was there was a vast Conspiracy within Hollywood To destroy the Van Dam Frank Duke's it's it's fucking insane All of this insane Like, What are we doing You can go like I said The aforementioned article in Slash Film The article that's in the LA Times All of this stuff is widely available It discredits everything that Duke says It's basically all a lie I want to say at least 85% of it What's the final verdict This is a quote from Sheldon Lettich From the Slash Film interview The fact that Frank hasn't been involved with any movie since 1994 says something, doesn't it? I think that Jean-Claude and I have done just fine without riding his coattails, now haven't we? Oof, yeah, major shade thrown there. Producer Pete had an idea. We're probably giving away our billion dollar idea. We said it first here, um, the film The Room, you know, which later went on to become the disaster artist with James Franco. There's a movie to be made. Here about the making of Bloodsport because it's such a wild story. And I'm sure if you had Van Dam consulting, that he could probably uh, give a lot of insight. So Sheldon Ledich goes on to direct JCVD and Lionheart. Big hit. Directs him in Double Impact. Big hit. As well as co direct The Quest. To this day, the two remain friends and. As of 2021, going into 2022, they spent New Year's Eve together with their families. Hey, it it worked out. It really did. The legacy of Bloodsport is insane. Um, It creates a whole new wave of martial arts movies. It really reframes what a martial arts movie can be. And everything kind of lives in its shadow for the whole decade. I mean, if you think about it, like Van Damme Lionheart, The Quest, are all kind of loose remakes, even Kickboxer, even though I love Kickboxer, sometimes, you know, it depends on what day it is, whether I like Bloodsport or Kickboxer more, it is, it's had a lasting effect, it, it, it's become a part of the pop culture zeitgeist, it's indelible, and it's left its mark. Now, I would say Enter the Dragon was the most influential, and after that, it's Bloodsport, and you know what? Second place ain't nothing to, to be ashamed of It's just that Enter the Dragon was the first to do it Bruce Lee was just you know an otherworldly presence that we haven't felt And uh, I think there was that huge gap And again, having a Caucasian that could do all of these things Was quite the novelty in 1988 Bloodsport played to millions of people worldwide Warner Brothers owns the rights now, and we still don't have a 4K disc. We still don't have a special edition with all the extras. It's something that I think has been a talking point among fans of this movie that Bloodsport deserves a theatrical re-release. I've never seen it on the big screen. When I was a kid, we got promotional copies. That I, I, I did martial arts. Van Damme was a big influence on me and we got promotional copies of bloodsport. What a crazy thing. That, now that's really good marketing right there. You've got all these kids who are they're living and breathing this whole lifestyle and you give out free VHSs to all these different dojos throughout the United States. Like that's so brilliant because it sets the stage for all of us to become consumers because we see this movie and we're like holy shit. And I think in the pantheon of action heroes, Van Dam brings an originality and a sincerity. His performance in this film is absolutely electric. We've got it running in the background right now, and it's hard to take your eyes off of Van Dam. He really is the great white hype of 1988. This film was just so successful. It made money for everybody. It's gone on to become legendary at this point. And I think that it deserves it. It really does. Go back. if you Look, some of you are listening to this show. You're like, where's the horror movies? But, you know, like we say, it's mostly horror, but always genre. And this is definitely a genre film. It's got some really gruesome stuff in it. It's got some murders. Got some legs being broken open. There's some really grisly stuff in this movie so it does fit into the au of what we do here. I'm still probably not saying that right, but again, my French is not as good as Jean-Claude Van Damme's. With that being said, Bloodsport is one of Seth Rogen's favorite films. I recently read his book, which was fantastic, a yearbook, and he, he pretty much dedicates a whole chapter to it. On that same side of the coin, it is also one of Donald Trump's Favorite films Diametrically opposed Like the yin and yang of the universe Seth Rogen Donald Trump But their mutual love Of Jean-Claude Van Damme Unites their very different Ideologies With that being said Maybe Bloodsport can bring World peace Because all of us love Jean-Claude Van Damme I don't know It's these are just my thoughts, but I just found that to be the most ridiculous out of everything we talked about today. The, the most ridiculous point here is that Rogan and Trump both love this movie, even though they hate each other. They they definitely Trump has gone on to come out and say that he hates Rogan. Rogan hates him. I don't know why they have beef. It's like a Biggie and Tupac thing that just doesn't make any sense where this Canadian stoner comedian writer has beef with uh well we'll just leave it at that i don't think i need to say his name anymore folks my name's jerry hara this has been the offering as i always say hit me up on social media what movies would you like to see us do i'm at jerry Hara on instagram twitter letterboxd i'm damn near on everything at this point we're on tiktok I haven't found the success because I just haven't gone fi- I haven't viral with a dance video just yet. But hey, who, who knows what the future holds. Go watch Bloodsport. It's a great film. I hope you're all doing well. Hope everything is good out there. Hope good things are coming into your life. I hope that you're storing up all of your chi so you can unleash it on the world and succeed. Because Jean-Claude Van Damme had a dream. I mean, Martin Luther King did too, but mostly Jean-Claude Van Damme. He had a dream. He made it happen. He took us to the promised land. He made Bolo Young say mate. I don't even know what that means, but I think it means that he quits or submits. Uh, Who cares? It's one of the greatest lines in the movie. Uh, This movie's got ogre. Donald Gibb, right? Right? Fantastic It's got fucking Forrest Whitaker Forrest Whitaker's in this movie Do I need to sell you Why you should be watching Bloodsport And if you've listened to this podcast Welcome to the wonderful world Of Jean-Claude Van Damme And I promise Your life will be better It will be chained He's the (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me Your life will be (laughs) chained That doesn't sound good Your life's going to be chained It's going to be a fucking nightmare from here on out No, no, it's going to be good Because once you bring in the power of Jean-Claude Van Damme You can never go wrong Folks, this has been The Offering We are mostly horror But always genre And we did it, folks We did it together We won the tournament (sighs) Good night and God bless You've been listening to the Offering with Jerry Hara. I'm very sorry. Produced by Pete Bune. If you have a question or a story you want to share with me, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit us up at Twitter at jerryhara or on Instagram at jerryhara. You get in the picture. Subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are provided for you and your family. I want you to enjoy. Just join us next time for another offering. I'm Tom. My partner, Mike, and I have been friends and co-workers for a long time. And at work, we're known for our daily water cooler conversations about TV shows and movies we are currently watching. Whether we're arguing over which Marvel TV show is the best or agreeing about which Netflix original movie is the worst, the pop culture conversation is always popping on Two Brothers at a Water Cooler. You can listen to Two Brothers at a Water Cooler on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. Subscribe and share today.
0: This has been a Sick Boy Wolfgang production. Thank you for listening.